Romans 9, 6 through 16. Romans 9, 6 through 16. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the promise, that this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our, our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have, will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And last week I spoke about Paul's sorrow for Israel and he was sorrowful because many of his brethren, according to the flesh, the Israelites, were lost. They were not coming to Christ. They were rejecting him. Uh, they were some of those who had nailed him to the cross. And here, Paul is examining uh, why. Why are they rejecting Jesus? And his first reason, which... I won't totally cover this week. I'll cover it some this week and probably uh, at least next week is God's choice. God did not choose all of them. He didn't make a promise to all the Israelites of the flesh. He chose some of them. Uh, some were children of promise and others were not. And only those who God chose are the ones who make it to heaven. And this we see in this passage. And my first point based on this passage is, number one, the failure of the Israelites was not a failure of God's word or his promise. Some of the Israelites may say, he promised to save all of us, but that was not what he did. He did not promise to save every single one of them. That's why it says here, but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. God's word always accomplishes its purposes. You know, at the very beginning of the Bible, we read, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's all God has to do is say something, and it is there. A lot harder for us. God does these things easily. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And in that context, 
he was talking about the Babylonians coming down upon Israel and a lot of uh, uh, the Israelites raised, that can't happen to us. We're God's people. He wouldn't do that. And they, they, they were very much against Isaiah. But God had spoke to him. God said it and it would happen and they could not stop it. Yet the word in its ministry, even today, has this twofold purpose. Uh, we see this in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16a. Paul's writing and he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Last week, I, I said, you know, the same rain and sunshine that makes flowers and fruit trees to grow, grow, grow also makes manure to stink. And God's people, the ones he chooses, will be, will be uh, those who have the fragrance of Christ and are saved. Uh, and others will die from the same message. They'll be judged for rejecting it. One of the issues for us, uh, we obviously like the purpose of mercy, but the purpose of justice which is right and good as well as mercy is, uh, we too often fail to like that one. Uh, we, we think and people say it's unfair if God is just, but he would be just and fair if he sent all of us to hell. The fact that he saves some of us is mercy. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord is talking about himself and he says, and the uh, to and to to Moses and he says and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercies for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin. And those are all the things that we love that God does for us. He forgives us. He's abounding. He's long suffering. But then it goes on and it says, by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so one, in one passage we see him, in the same passage, I mean one part of it, uh, he's talking about mercy and graciousness and long-suffering and goodness and truth. And then he says, but by no means will he clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity on the third and the fourth generation of the children. So we see Abraham, he has a problem with lying about his wife, saying that she's his sister. And his son Isaac does the same thing. And they were both godly men. Uh, what about the ungodly who carry on the sins of their father? And so we see this, that God's word accomplishes its purpose. And some of his purposes are for mercy and some of them are for justice, and we'll see that in this passage as we go through it. But secondly, the second point, and this is, is just as important, it's one I've already kind of made, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It says that, verse 6b, 
for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, meaning that every physical descendant of Jacob, uh, Israel is not a chosen, saved child of God. God truly, truly, or clearly chooses one uh, while rejecting another. And the first example he gives is Abraham's children. Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael, uh, was Ishmael, but Isaac was the child of promise. As it says in Romans 9, 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so there he's saying God, God chose Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael, even though uh, Abraham would have been happy to have Ishmael be the chosen one. Uh, but that was not God's plan. Verse 8 is, is, it is clearly stated in Romans 9, that is, those who are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as a seed. And so that's already telling them that just because they were born an Israelite, born according to the flesh, did not make them saved. It did not mean they were chosen. It did not mean they were children of the promise. And then it goes on. Uh, Sarah's son, not Hagar's, not Keturah's, the later wife, was the child of promise. It says in 9.9, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. That's the word of promise, and Romans 9 is telling us that's the son, the son of Sarah, that is going to be the chosen one through whom uh, actually the chosen one, Jesus, would eventually be born. When told this, Abraham had questioned God, even in joyous wonder, because he's been telling, God's been telling him he's going to have a baby, and he's near 100, he'll be 100 by the time Isaac is born, and Sarah will be 90, and so it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I think partly when he's saying that, he's saying that would have been enough. This is too wonderful to think that I will have a son when I'm 100 years old. Uh, but he's excited about that. Uh, but God answers this. He, he, he says, then the next verse in verse 19 of Genesis 17, he says, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so Ishmael is out of the picture. Ishmael was circumcised, he had the sign of the covenant, but he was not part of it. He did not uh, enjoy the promise. The second example, though, God's choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. This even more shows the power of God's election, his God's choice. And this is true because not both of Isaac's children were chosen. You know, you could think of them as both being chosen, but they were not. One was chosen and one was rejected. God's loving Jacob 
but hating Esau has as its stated purpose the demonstrating of the fact of God's election. Here in verses 10 through through 13, uh, it says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That's before they were born. The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, and this was after that this was written because Malachi wrote it. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Uh, Romans 9.13. Uh, that tells us, one, Rebecca and Isaac were one couple. There wasn't another wife or husband involved in this particular uh, birthing of children. There was just one couple. So Jacob and Esau had the same parents. So this is a more powerful argument than the Isaac and Ishmael one because they had different mothers. Before they were born, it's stated before they were born that God says the older shall serve the younger. And they were twins because we read in Genesis that they were both in the womb together. So even though Esau was the firstborn, Jacob was not like a whole year behind or more than that. They were born roughly at the same time. And yet it says the older shall serve the younger because Jacob was the younger. We see this in Genesis 25, the actual prophecy uh, in verse 21, it says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. He was praying for her because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea. I mean, he answered Isaac's prayer. Uh, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If this, if all this is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So Esau would end up serving Jacob. Jacob was the chosen one. Esau was not. Notice stated also, not only before they were born, uh, which is clearly stated, but it also says, uh, not be, only before they before, but it's born, but it says not have not having done any good or, e- or evil. So it wasn't they're not. You know, he he says this here before they do any good and evil, because God is choosing one over the other, not based on the fact that Esau was really good and uh, or Jacob was really good and Esau was bad. He chose them before that was the case before they were born, and then to make it extra sure, he says that the purpose of God according to election might stand, meaning God's electing, choosing one over the other, not of works, but of him who calls. And as I said, the point is, one was not better than the other. God did not choose Jacob because he was better than Esau, they both were bad. They were both born in sin. They were both child, children of Adam. 
they were identical in that, that they were both sinners. They were equals, you could say, twins, though not identical. They both had the same parents, and so they had roughly the same upbringing. You know, somebody might question their upbringing because uh, the father preferred Esau, and Rebecca, the mother, preferred Jacob's, and so their parents were each picking a favorite child, uh, but each of them had one that favored them. So you could say they were equal in that they had that. As I said, both were born in sin. They were both ultimately children of Adam. And yet one is chosen for mercy and grace and to be uh, the forerunner of Christ in the promise and one is lost. Now some people will say, well that's just talking about Israel as, as a nation and this is God's plan uh, for how Christ would come into the world and he chose one for that purpose and did it for that purpose the other. Uh, that's true in a sense. He really did do that. God chose Israel as a nation to bring Christ into the world, and that is true. They were elect of God for that purpose, but if you leave it at that, you're missing the whole argument because the very start of the chapter, Paul is telling us why are some Israelites saved and some not, and he says not all Israel is Israel. And he's referring to what was happening in his day when he, by the grace of God, as an Israelite, and the apostles, uh, all of them were Israelites, and most of the disciples were Israelites. How were they saved and others were not? And he's saying it's not because we're better or we're different. It's because God chose us and he did not choose these others. That's the start of his argument here and he uses Jacob and Esau to back that argument to say this is how God works so even if you say that this was his choosing Jacob because he's establishing the nation Israel and he's going to he has this particular plan all I say is yes that's true but that still does not negate the argument that he's using at this point in Romans 9 to say these are the people of God who God has chosen and others are rejecting him. Why? Because he has not chosen them. And that's the point he's trying to make. God's love for Jacob was real and so was his hatred of Esau. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now the idea of hatred can be expressed as less love or love less. And I've heard this preached about Esau, about the hatred of Esau, that it should be defined as less love, that he just loved Esau less than he loved uh, Jacob. Uh, and... Yet, if that's what the hatred means, which I believe that in the Greek, the word hatred can mean, you know, it can be expressed in, in a couple different ways. Let's say there's somebody that is hated by somebody else, and this person hates that person so much that when they see them in the road, and they, they're driving their car, they run them over, 
and then they back up over their body and they run over it again. And that you could say that's somebody who hated that person. And today those kind of things are called hate crimes. And we know there's hatred there. And that kind of hate is in the scripture. There's also the hate that we call less love, which would be expressed by this person. Maybe he's your enemy and he's not in the middle of the road, but he tries to wave at you. You totally ignore him. In fact, if he asks you for a favor, you ignore him. You don't do anything for him. You're not helping him. And, and, and when we think of God as one or the other uh, in regard to Esau, I think when we think of all the things that happen, it doesn't matter. It's, it could be both or either one. And you know, the hatred expressed by ignoring someone, not making any effort of helping them, when it's God who's ignoring you and not making any effort to help you, what, how do you end? You end up in hell uh, because our sins will carry us there. Uh, even if, if God did not design it, which he did. And so however you want to express the hate, whether it's the first kind of active run them over the car hate or, or the ignoring, you know, as you go by him, driving the car and he's waving and looking for your help and you just ignore him either hate loving less or hate in the in the other way both are are expressed for Esau in the original instance in Malachi consider the context here um, Jacob is our, our God is actually through Malachi he's talking to Israel and they are doubting God's love for them. And so he's trying to tell them how he loves them. And he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have we, you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness even though Edom has said, we have become impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord ha will have indignation forever. That sounds almost like it borders more on the run them over the car kind of hatred than just the ignoring them hatred. But either way, they're not saved. Now what we see is this love-hate continued beyond the individuals to nations. Israel was loved and privileged, but Esau, Edom was despised and thrown down. And there's that national picture you can see in Scripture. One nation is chosen by God. They get God's law. They get God's privileges. Uh, the others are, are pushed aside like the mountain's been destroyed, and whatever they do to try to build up, uh, it seems like God is pushing them down. Some will argue that this thing about the nations is what Romans 9 is all about, but then again, it's divorcing from Paul's main point that he's making at the very first. Uh, some Israelites are saved, like Paul himself, like Peter. Uh, some were not saved, 
Why is that the case? And this is his argument. I've chosen this one. I haven't chosen the other one. And so he's explaining that. And this is part of that explanation. They had privileges that Esau and Edom lacked. But like Edom, they were, they were never truly Israel. Meaning those people who had, were of Israel, but born of Israel, but were not part of the promise. They were, in a sense, like Edom. Now, when you think that way, I think it's very, very possible that an Edomite today, if there was such a person who believes and trusted in Christ, uh, would be one of the promised ones, uh, would be in this right category, and an Israelite could be in the wrong. Uh, but that's, that's what is said in the Old Testament. And here, what we see here is here. But... But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for not all Israel. Okay, and this is verse 9, 6. Not all Israel are Israel. Uh, they had forfeited the privileges and this they may be both like and worse than Edom and Esau. That was the Israelites in Paul's day. Like Esau, they were like Esau in that he also did not value spiritual privileges uh, Hebrews twelve sixteen says lest there be a fornicator or a profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright uh, he had a chance he had the birthright to start with but he sold it worse than Esau though in that they seem to have more spiritual light than Esau as Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty through 24 then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he says the same thing about Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented, but you did not. And so Esau is probably more likely to have repented if he saw Jesus than these countries. So it may be more tolerable for him. But then he had his own revelation. They rejected Jesus. But the reason given at the end, after all this, uh, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. And so... We see this is the case here. See, our sin takes us to hell, but it's God's grace and mercy that gets us to heaven. I'm just going to go real quickly through verses 14 through 16 and probably deal with them again next week. What shall we then say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom, whom, whomever I will have compassion. So that it is not of him who wills, nor him who runs, but God who shows mercy. How does God, how does Romans 9.16, this is the last point. So then it is not of him, so it is not of him who wills work. And this is about our will. 
Well, Isaiah 45, 22 says, Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And the person who has a true saving faith in Jesus looks to God and is saved by that faith. That's it. They don't have to say, how did I do this? What did I do? What caused me to be better than this other person? They just look to God and believe that he has the power to save them. The person who believes in so-called free will looks up to God and says to himself, he, God, cannot save me unless I look within to my free will, which will give me the power to respond to him. And when I do this, then Jesus can save me. And that's where the free will part really gets crazier because he says there must be something in me that makes me different than somebody else or why would God choose me if I'm not better than that other person? It must be my faith that is something I exercise by my free will. And so uh, what makes the difference between Peter who denied he even knew Jesus and Judas who betrayed him What's the difference? It's God's mercy. It's not that Peter in and of himself was so much better than Judas. They both had uh, been horrible. They both were sinners. They both rejected Jesus. How do we make choices? Or do we make choices? Yes. Do we make good and bad choices? Yes. Do our choices save us? Or does God's mercy save us? Is it him who wills, him who runs? Is that how we're saved? By one willing and running more than another? Uh, Paul is saying here, it's not of him who wills or him who runs, but it is of God who shows us mercy. Whenever we might struggle with these things, uh, it's easy to think, how am I saved? Is it something I did to cooperate? Did, did God need me to help him? If we think that way, we are saying God only did this much, even if it's 99.9999% of the work for my salvation. But if it wasn't for the one part I did that made me different from that person in hell, I was the one that made the difference in who I am. Yes, it says in Hebrews 12:2, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Some people are saying, yes, Jesus is the author of my faith, but I'm the finisher of it. And sometimes when people look at Romans 9, or, or the last couple verses, or near the last in Romans 8, when it talks about foreknowledge, they say, God looked ahead and he saw that I would make the right decision and that's why he chose me and so he predestined me because after he looked and saw that I would make the right decision he predestined me that with his foreknowledge well that's not predestination that's after I looked ahead destination or after destination and so in that case is Jesus the author and finisher of faith no, he's not even the author. He, he looked ahead to see what was written ahead, what you did, and you become the author and the finisher of your faith. But some believe that Jesus, maybe he started it, but I have to finish it. It's my free will that makes it. 
And yet scripture says we love him because he first loved us. We have a will. We make decisions all the time. Scripture doesn't deny that. But it does deny that our will saves us. That our will is free from sin to make the right decisions. All we have done, if we look at Romans, it says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It doesn't say there are some that seek for God and they were righteous, at least in this one thing. And that's why they're saved and others are lost. But this scripture is pretty much telling us, and next week even more we'll see, that it's who God chooses who has mercy on. Uh, and, and when you think of mercy, what is mercy? You know, does God have mercy on me because I'm righteous and good? No, if I'm righteous and good, I don't need God's mercy because there's nothing that I'm blameworthy of. I need God's mercy because I'm a sinner. So he has mercy on whom he has mercy, compassions whom he has compassion, but then he also judges who he will judge. And he's righteous when he judges. And we should be just thankful that we're among those that he is merciful to. And we don't know who he's going to be merciful to outside. So we're commanded to preach the gospel to everyone. Uh, but we also know that it's not their own will that will save them. It's God that will save them. So we preach in God's ways with God's words. We don't have to change them to make people more, to make the gospel more palatable to an ungodly person so that they're more likely to change their minds. Uh, that's, that's not the gospel at all. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture and what it teaches what it says in this, this passage. I know I didn't cover it fully and powerfully as I could, uh, but maybe next week will help also. And I just pray that you'd help us all to understand it and help us to know more and more uh, how great you are and how gracious you've been to us. And Father, you've pulled us along. Uh, scripture in John 6, which we'll also come to pretty soon in the mornings, tells about the actual Greek word is drag. You drag us to Christ. And Father, we thank you for that. Paul was not one who came with his will all ready to praise and, uh, and preach you, but he was coming to persecute you as Saul, and you saved him. And Father, it's amazing grace that you save any of us, and we thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.